Hey everyone, thanks for checking out Grubstakers, the podcast about billionaires. This week we're going to be talking about Sam Walton and the Walmart Empire. Enjoy our part one where we discuss Sam Walton's life, the union-busting practices of Walmart, and the modest half-a-million-dollar loan that he received by marrying Rich. All that and more this week on Grubstakers. I think we disproportionately stop whites too much. I taught those kids lessons on product development and marketing, and they taught me what it was like growing up feeling targeted for your race. I am proud to be gay. I am proud to be a Republican. You know, I went to a tough school in Queens, and they used to beat up the little Jewish boys. You know, I love having the support of real billionaires. Uh, in fact. Four, three, two. Hello, welcome back to Grubstickers. Uh, Sean P. McCarthy here, joined by... Yogi Paywall. Steve Jeffries. Andy Palmer. And uh, this week, we've got a, a very special episode for you, a two-parter on the Walton family of Walmart. Dose. And, uh, and yeah, and so... You may like, notice the upbeat tunes. Uh-huh. Uh, that is the Walmart theme. Oh, really? <laughs> I didn't know they had a theme. I thought the theme involved spelling the name. <laughs> That's the chant. Yes, the it's, chant. it's like the difference between the Boy Scout motto and the Boy Scout slogan. Okay. Well, and so basically when we talk about the Walmart family, we should take a note here that there are seven members of the Walmart family on the Forbes 400. That's the 400 richest people in the world. And, um, you know, we'll talk about the founder of Walmart, Sam Walton. He's a bad, exploitive guy, but... I mean, he did something. So seven of, the f- jobs. seven of the 400 richest people in the world just happened to be born into uh, the world's largest supply chain based around turning Bengali children into tater tots. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, so it's like, it, it's just something where it's like, we're, we're, when we talk about the Walton family, we are talking about the world's Those wealthiest. Are, by the way, in the grocery section under Soylent Tots. <laughs> yeah, they're, they say they're organic, but they're not organic. They're not free range either. When we talk about the Walton family, we are talking about the world's wealthiest welfare recipients. I mean, you know, and then Bernie Sanders, among others, have gone through this. They uh, take X billion a year, um, uh, making their employees get on food stamps and Medicaid. Um, They take uh, several billion dollars in state and local tax abatements. Um, and, of course, the the crime problem is something that we'll talk about either uh, this week or next week. But essentially, like, lo- they cut security costs to the bones, and then they expect local police departments to subsidize their security. So, you know, like, in Tulsa, Arizona, the police force will spend half of their time in a fucking Walmart, you know. Tulsa? Tulsa? That's what I said, right? Tulsa, Arizona? Oklahoma? I, oh, it's maybe. Oklahoma. Oh, okay. Well, you know, somewhere out there... <laughs> You know, I I do hate these uh, welfare queens committing crimes in my country. If there's one thing I'm opposed to, it's cutting welfare for everybody. No, that's one thing I'm for. I'm I'm in favor of. Um, But so just like. Cut all of this. A couple quick stats before we get into this. Uh, The Walmart family collectively owns about half of the Walmart stock. I think a little more than half of the stock. Uh, As we mentioned, seven members on the Forbes 400, uh, wealthiest people in the world. And um, they have more wealth just between those seven members than the bottom 40% of all people in America. I think that might have even gone up since I looked at that stat. But it's at least the bottom almost half of the country has less wealth than these seven people. Are they the richest family in the, in yes, the world? Yes, they're the yeah. richest family in the world. What's uh, the chance that any two of them fucked each other? It's, it's, it's non-zero. 60%. 60, yeah. I, that's a fair assessment. Yeah. There's so. seven of them. They were raised in, you know, what I assume is like a tower. Uh, <laughs> Built of ivory. Yeah. And, you know, they're... Uh, there's a taboo with fraternizing with the servants. They're watching so. that show like, uh, you know, except for the part where they pay the debts, this is pretty realistic. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yes, Walmart has also been implicated in wage theft, among other things. And of course, we'll mm. get into the, the supply chain um, <laughs> uh, and all the the horrific abuses that go into that. Um, but I guess we it should... It was born out of a, a very efficient... Um, technology they developed to make it easier for the Walton kids to fuck each other. Oh, really? Yeah. Is that is that how they made that music? Yeah. 
Why they love making music? <laughs> yeah. When they're in their post-apocalyptic bunker. Yeah. <laughs> Area 71. Well, it's time to repopulate. <laughs> they can't control the music. There, so. <laughs> they're cursed to hear the music at all times in their head. Um, but yeah, so uh, we, uh, so this is a two-parter. We'll talk about um, this this part today. We'll go through the biography of Sam Walton again, the founder. Uh, when we talk about you know the uh, the seven Waltons, these are his heirs. They just inherited what he built essentially. Um, mm-hmm. So we'll talk about Sam Walton. We'll talk a bit about some of Walmart's abuses. But we should start with the Grubstakers chant because we can't begin an episode. Without the grub stakers chant. Usually so, off mic. You think when they all fuck each other, it's a super Sam? <laughs> <laughs> well, they have to have a membership. <laughs> but yes, Yogi's right. We, we've been doing the chant off mic, but I think we should yes. bring the audience in. So give me a G. 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 Give me an R. 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 Give me a U. 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 Give me a B. 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 Ableist slur. <laughs> That's our start. <laughs> All right, now everyone slit a part of your hand and then put it in the middle, and then I'll bring in the sacrificial intern. <laughs> but yeah, so if you're not aware, like at the start of every Walmart shift, these poor, uh, horrifically exploited and underpaid uh, employees are forced to do this cult like chant. To the fucking big brother, uh, uh, Walmart, where they spell out the name and they, you know, get all amped up and stuff. It's like, oh, yes. Are you excited to uh, work 45 hours a week and have it appear as 40 hours on your paycheck? (laughs) It's uh, only a few groups that do this. It's Walmart, it's Mm. sports teams, and it's various cults around the world. (laughs) Start their days with chance. Give me an H. Give me an A E. Give me an A. What's that spell? Heaven's Gate. <laughs> um, okay, uh, I see that we're not giving hundred percent. Some of you have bags on your heads. <laughs> <laughs> that comes later. Um, but so yeah, so this episode, I think we will uh, just kind of go through the. Um, uh, the biography of Mr. Sam Walton. Uh, Sam Walton died in 1992, oh. um, but he's the, he's the man who built Walmart. So it's essentially, like essentially, when we talk about um, any of the Walmart heirs, you know, the question of like what did they do to become billionaires is just the question of what did Sam Walton do? Right, right. Like he did this, and then he had sex a couple times, and then that's why they're billionaires. And then the product of that had sex with each other. <laughs> So much. Allegedly. <laughs> the original Sam's Club. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but so, to start with the story of Sam Walton, we'll just kind of go through this uh, biographically, and then uh, we'll, we'll see how long this takes. But essentially, uh, Sam Walton... <laughs> Sam Walton is born in 1918 on a farm in Oklahoma. And it's an interesting story where his father was, like, kind of a farmer... But um, he went into the farm loan business eventually. Oh, really? Um, yeah. And, and so Sam Walton writes an autobiography in 19... It's published in 1992. He writes it like when they tell him his cancer came back and he's going to die, mm. you know. So, right. But um, I guess I'll just kind of quote a bit from Sam Walton. And I'm sure he wrote every word. <laughs> I'll quote a bit from Sam Walton here just because this is him talking about his father and, and what his dad did and these kinds of things. Uh, Dad never had the kind of ambition or confidence to build much of a business on his own, and he didn't believe in taking on debt. When I was growing up, he had all sorts of jobs. He was a banker and a farmer and a farm loan appraiser and an agent for both insurance and real estate. Uh, Early in the Depression, he was out of work. I wonder what could have put him off from taking on debt. (laughs) (laughs) I also wonder how he could be a farm loan banker and not take on debt. You're right, right. Um. But so for a few months early in the Great Depression, of course, it's 1929 in the United States, um, he was out of work altogether for a few months. And uh, eventually, uh, uh, Sam Walton's father goes to work for Walton Mortgage Co., which was Mm. 
his brother's company. His brother had a company called Walton Mortgage Co., which was an agent for Metropolitan Life Insurance, which was a big life insurance company at the time. So basically, again, quoting Sam Walton, Dad became the guy who had to serve Metropolitan's old farm loans, most of which were in default because of the Great Depression. In 1929 and 1930 and 1931, He had to repossess hundreds of farms from wonderful people whose families had owned the land forever. I traveled with him some, and it was tragic and really hard on Dad, too, but he tried to do it in a way that left these farmers with as much of their self-respect as he could. But, of course, not any of their farms. Right, right. Repossessing is the hardest part of my job. (laughs) (laughs) But, yeah, so essentially Sam Walton's dad was a guy who foreclosed on hundreds of farmers during the Great Depression. Well, my uh, great-grandfather would like to thank him for pushing him off his farm as humanely as possible. (laughs) (laughs) In many ways, uh, Sam Walton's uh, father is the reason Andy is on this podcast today. And not churning butter somewhere in Wisconsin or whatever. Kansas or <laughs> Iowa. <laughs> um, but it's, uh, I mean, it's it's an interesting thing where, um, li- like, he kind of plays, you know, poor upbringing. And, of course, it was the Great Depression, so he had to move around a lot. He had odd jobs. He talks about he, like, they sold milk from their farm. He sold magazine subscriptions. He had a paper route. But um, all of this... Sold variable rate mortgages. (laughs) (laughs) But of course, like, when you're the guy doing the foreclosing, you are relatively privileged in the fact that it's like, you know, again, his dad foreclosed on hundreds of properties, and it's like, who knows how many of those people had the entrepreneurial Mm -hmm. spirit to become Sam Walton, but of course they got kicked off their fucking farm, and many of them uh, committed suicide. Uh, There was even starvation uh, in the United States leading up to FDR. So, I mean, this is a horrific situation, and, you know... It's nuts. Yeah, I mean... I do love how he turned, like, foreclosing on people into, like, his hard scrabble upbringing. Oh, yeah, and then the other part of that quote is Sam Walton says, All of this, the foreclosures, must have made an impression on me as a kid, although I don't ever remember saying anything to myself like, I'll never be poor. But that's the idea that it's like, you see this horrific foreclosure and stuff, and you're like, oh, I should become the richest person in the world (laughs) by exploiting uh, all of my retail employees. Yeah. Um, which we'll we'll get to in a second here. Like you just see people like left on the streets with their belongings, and sobbing and being like, "Well, that was their mistake." I mean, it is a great irony of Sam Walton's life is essentially he like saw the worst of pre New Deal capitalism while he was a child, and then made it his life's mission to undo all of the changes <laughs> meant to prevent what he saw when he was a child. And he's like, "All right, this is what happens to people at the bottom." I'm, I'm it's it's a total social Darwinist lens. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I mean entirely, you know. And it's like the, these people who got foreclosed on, it's they weren't bad farmers, they weren't stupid people. Like he even said himself, they'd had the land in their families for generations. They just got swept up in larger economic trends, completely beyond their control. And he just so happened to avoid those trends for most of his life. And he thinks he's a fucking hard scrabble person, and that this is the way the world is. Mm-hmm. I mean, he did create that music, though. That sweet, sweet music. <laughs> um, yeah, that's what this was all about. Yeah. I just get hard thinking about this song. Get your shit out on the curb now. <laughs> <laughs> He's standing outside, like, with a boombox. <laughs> yeah, we'll be taking these cows. Thank you. Um... But so, uh, uh, Sam Walton, he moves around a lot as a child. Um, Interestingly enough, uh, we have another Eagle Scout on the podcast today, in addition to Andy Palmer. Sam Walton becomes the youngest Eagle Scout in Missouri history at the age of 13 in 1931. By doing this, he killed every other (laughs) 12-year-old that was about to become an Eagle Scout. By the way, the 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 inside knowledge, the way that works is usually like the parents, overzealous parents just sign off on all the merit badges. Uh Right, right. Uh, And they had to like implement a policy eventually where it's like parents cannot sign off on their own children's (laughs) merit badges. Man, you, we don't have a very good record of Eagle, Eagle Scouts. Yeah. Yeah. Hank Paulson was one. Yeah. They all seem to uh, not be eagles, if you ask me. The discovering a farmer's suicide merit badge. 
Yeah, I'll tell you, when I became an Eagle Scout, the ho- now, hardest... Now, son, what kind of knot did he use? <laughs> the hardest badge to earn uh-huh. was the foreclosure one, because it was just so hard on me. <laughs> Dragging that family out of their house in my brown shirt. <laughs> yeah, interestingly enough, all the other uh, young candidates for Eagle Scout couldn't be found at their farms <laughs> anymore. <laughs> Um, but yeah, so he would uh, become the youngest Eagle Scout. Later, he would become a distinguished Eagle Scout, which we mentioned about Hank Paulson, too. It's for doing something. In this case, blatant wage theft right, right. <laughs> for decades. Um, but yes, he becomes a distinguished Eagle Scout later in his life. Um, and so essentially, he's able to attend the University of... Uh, the family eventually settles in Missouri after bouncing around a fair bit during the Depression. Uh, he attends the University of Missouri as an ROTC uh, cadet. Uh, he graduates 1940 with a bachelor's in economics. And um, uh, during this period, uh, right after he graduates in 1940, he gets a job as a manager management trainee at JCPenney. They pay like 75 a month at that time. Uh, and he works there till 1942, where he kind of gets swept up in World War II. Um, but it is interesting. So just to kind of mention here. So- Most of his duties were to report Japanese workers. <laughs> Fuck! <laughs> <laughs> Which he did very successfully. Yeah, <laughs> got a couple of badges out of it too. Yeah. He led the uh, morning. Oh, into, yeah. He led a, the morning. A, they introduced a new badge. Yeah, right. The eyes yeah. open badge. I was gonna say he led the morning internment camp chants. <laughs> <laughs> Give me a D, E, P. It's deportation. <laughs> um. But so, uh, oh yeah, so 1940, he's a management trainee for um, uh, J.C. Penney, and it's here that he meets his wife. And essentially, the other reason he is able to become a billionaire is he marries rich. Uh, his his wife, Helen, who was married to his whole life, she recently passed away. Um, but um, <laughs> he's uh, he's like on leave, or no, he's... They're, a, they're carrying the casket, like, you know, to, her, to, I guess, the Walton tomb. Right, right. And just in the background. <laughs> <laughs> um, but so... They uh, met at JCPenney? Uh, no, so he's, uh, he's uh, leaving... Uh, He's on, like, I think, vacation in Oklahoma in the mm-hmm. early 1940s, and he goes out bowling, and he meets his wife while bowling, and they would get married in 1943 hmm. and have their first son, who is still alive today and worth, like, $45 billion, um, in 1944. That is the only way people fucked back then. <laughs> so you go out to the alley and, you know. Yeah. Throw a couple of strikes. Yeah, you go, you go to the back room, and once the, once the pens start falling, no one can hear That's your right. moans of pleasure. And their first son was named 710 Split. <laughs> he takes her back to his place, and then to seal the deal, he's like, uh, hey, do you want to hear this on a record player? <laughs> um, but so, uh, um, yeah, so he meets his wife. Uh, they're married in 1943, and his uh, Helen's father, his wife's Father, his father-in-law is a rich lawyer and businessman who would eventually give him the startup capital to start what would become Walmart. But oh, friends and family trust, LLC. Yes, exactly. Um, but so just like in World War II, he has an irregular heartbeat is the way it's reported. So he says like he enlisted, but they were like, no, irregular heartbeat will give you like part-time duties. So and we actually have a sound clip of what his heartbeat does. <laughs> <laughs> so it's irregular, but you know what? It's hot. <laughs> I hope you guys aren't sick of this because this is going to be a two-parter. Settling. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, so uh, he's d- deployed as an officer in uh, Fort Douglas in Salt Lake City, Utah. So he's never deployed overseas. But from forty-two to forty-five, he's uh, basically he reaches the rank of captain captain he's in the army intelligence corps and um he he, basically his job is to supervise security of aircraft plants and prisoner of war camps so that's what he does for three years and prisoner of war camps you say (laughs) how many prisoners of war made it to the american homeland well i'm sure there were some (laughs) i just love how his experience uh a supervisor of prisoner war camps yes it just kind of leads into what he ends up doing with this Walmart empire. <laughs> He's like, oh, so they're all locked in and they can't leave and they have to do hard labor. And we start oh, the this, day with a chant. This is how we should clean our stores. <laughs> <laughs> 
Walmart would be busted later for they were having illegal immigrants clean the stores and they were locking them in. So from nine wow, really? nine p.m. to seven thirty a.m., uh, these people would be locked in the store and forced to clean it. And someone had to be like, uh, Sam. Just because they're Japanese <laughs> doesn't mean they're illegal immigrants. Um, but yes, so 1945, he leaves the military. And um, uh, basically what happens is uh, he purchases uh, a franchise that's actually still around today. They're called the Ben Franklin stores. Oh, I know and, those stores. They're yeah, yeah. Great. Uh, so at this point, they were called five and dime stores, but per inflation, you probably know them today as 99 cent stores. <laughs> uh, but yes, yeah, so he purchases... 99 cent and up stores. Yes. He purchases um, a Ben Franklin five and dime store franchise in Newport, Arkansas, as shortly after he leaves the military in 1945. And he's able to do this with... Um, Are you saying his his business career started with literally nickel and dime people? <laughs> <laughs> I think that would be fair. Um, he's uh, so he's able to to purchase this store because he, apparently he has his himself and his wife have about five thousand dollars saved up, and his father in law gives him a twenty thousand dollar loan, wow. which in today's money is two hundred and twenty five thousand dollars. So uh, you know, just like Bezos and his three hundred thousand dollar loan, Sam Walton gets a two hundred and twenty five thousand dollar loan to start him out. So when you said and that's that, the only parallel between the two, <laughs> <laughs> when you said that they had five thousand, five thousand a piece or five thousand total, five thousand total. That's wow. how much of their own, own even, money they put even in. Even in today's dollars, that's still more than people right than the average household save has saved up. Right. <laughs> that's yeah. fucking nuts. Well, so yeah, and and so he gets this fat loan to start up, and then it's kind of an interesting consequence of um, the New Deal uh, minimum wage law, because of course there was no minimum wage in the United States before Franklin Roosevelt signed it in, but there were these exceptions for agricultural workers um, and also for uh, retail workers. So throughout the uh, 40s, he starts in 45, and the 1950s, all the way up to 1961, Mm -hmm. there's no minimum wage for retail workers. So this is why, and then of course you have the post-World War II economic boom. So essentially he's able to get a pretty good thing uh, going. And I just want to quote from uh, Nelson Lichtenstein, who wrote the book The Retail Revolution about Walmart. Um, So Sam Walton wrote in his memoir, quote, no matter how you slice it in the retail business, payroll is one of the most crucial things you have to fight to maintain your profit margin. That was true then, and it is still true today. And that's Sam Walton. And then uh, 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 Nelson goes on, by his own admission, Walton was quote, a chintzy employer in the early years. Since all retail clerks were exempt from the federal minimum wage law in the 1950s, Walton could pay as little as 50 cents an hour, which was a rock-bottom wage even for small-town Arkansas. When in 1955, Charlie Baum, the manager of Walton's Fayetteville, Ben Franklin, gave his, quote, girls, because most of retail workers were women at this point in time, he gave his girls a 25-cent-an-hour raise. Sam was immediately on the phone. Charlie, we don't give raises of a quarter an hour. We give them a nickel an hour. <laughs> and so, basically, he just paid garbage wages, even by the standard of the time, it's because also, there was no minimum wage. It's also worth noting that in his quote, he says profit margin. Mm-hmm. And so, it kind of cuts to the um, core of all those arguments that, like, oh, if you raise the minimum wage, it's going to raise prices. And it's like, well, that's assuming that there's no profit margin. Right, mm-hmm. right. Like, the profit margin is completely like you know kind of what the owners take home Mm -hmm. and so like if you raise the minimum wage no it's not going to immediately lead to a rise in prices first it's going to lower the profit margins for the owners Mm -hmm. which is why they're so against it because that's you know where capitalists get their money literally literally eh? but so and we'll get back to the minimum wage thing because, of course, Kennedy signs a minimum wage for retail in 1961, and then Sam Walton gets in trouble for that, too. But So basically, 1945 to 1950, he has this store, and he's doing very well. But what happens is the, the landlord at this store actually sees that Sam Walton is doing so well that he's like, no, I'm not going to renew your lease. I'm just going to put my son in charge of the store. <laughs> so, um, And this is you know like an early lesson in Sam Walton's business career. But uh, basically, in 1951, the landlord won't renew the lease. So what happens is, in 1950, Sam Walton 
has to go get another store, and actually his father-in-law helps him again and gives him or pays another twenty thousand, again two hundred and twenty-five thousand in today's money. His father-in-law gets him another store in Bentonville, Arkansas. Uh, by putting in $225,000. You know, these things everybody has access to. It sounds like a ridiculous loan, but the interest rate that Sam had to pay must have been just (laughs) astronomical. But literally... Being an untested businessman. Literally a little less than half a million dollars between the two loans. Yes, Um, Yeah, so that's how much startup capital he was able to get uh, just from his father-in-law. Um, and so what happens is in 1950, yeah, his father-in-law gets him a 99-year lease on another store because they learn their lesson with five-year leases. They don't mess around with those anymore. And he has to move out of the original store, and then the landlord puts his son in charge of it. But for about a year, he's running both stores, and this kind of like gives him the idea to like go out on an expansionary tear. Right, right. And so uh, what happens is uh, they open their second store. After they move to this one, they open another one in Fayetteville, Arkansas in 1952. 1954, he opens a store with his brother Bud in a suburb of Kansas City, Missouri. And Bud Walton would also become a billionaire since deceased. But uh, his brother Bud went in on like a lot of these early Walmarts with him. So, you know, they both became billionaires. Um, But so essentially by 1960, uh, he had uh, 15 stores and revenue of about $1.4 million. Wow. Uh, by 1960. And again, you know, no minimum wage, uh, a boom, post-World War II economy. He benefited from a lot of these things. And are these are Walmarts he's starting? Or no, no, these, no. Are these, are, these are still Ben Franklin's. Gotcha. Excuse me, that's an important point, is yeah. that these are Ben Franklin five-and-dime franchise stores. So he's kind of like learning the retail business, but he, he opens the first Walmart in, I believe, 1962, which we'll get to in a second. But, um, but so basically, I, I do just kind of want to get to essentially the minimum wage that we were talking about just earlier. Mm-hmm. Is 1961, uh, JFK had a campaign promise to raise the minimum wage and apply it to retail workers. I think it went up to like a dollar fifteen or yeah, a dollar fifteen an hour was what JFK signed into law in 1951. Uh, interestingly enough, the Congress and had- I promise I will keep Cuba an American protectorate. <laughs> And then, you know, once he couldn't get the one campaign promise, he had to deliver on the other. As sure as my head is on my shoulders, <laughs> retail workers deserve a fair wage. Um, but uh, so 1961, um, there's this minimum wage. And interestingly enough, uh, Congress starts... What happened to Kennedy next will blow your mind. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Congress... Uh, granted an ex- exclusion. So basically, small businesses with annual sales below a million dollars don't have to pay the minimum wage. They would later, in 65, that goes down to 250000 But what um, Sam Walton is able to do is uh, incorporate his businesses as if each one is a is its own franchise. So all of them are kicking oh, really? back to them, to him. But he sets it up so every individual one reports its profits uh, or revenue as less than a million a year. And again, this is 15 stores in 1960. And so all of them are saying like, yeah, we're making less than a million. So right. this is how he's able to get around the minimum wage up until like 1968 or so. I want to be um, clear. Small businesses are the basis of the American economy. <laughs> Uh, but so, and then just like another, so this goes until about 1968, and then actually a district attorney uh, files legal action against Sam Walton because this is obviously illegal dodging of the minimum wage. And I'll just kind of like quote a bit more from um, uh, Nelson Lichtenstein in his book. Uh, when Took the, a break from defending cops who killed people. <laughs> uh, when the. Uh, When the courts finally ruled that his decentralized ownership structure, this is in the late 60s, I believe around 68, uh, was but a scheme to avoid the new wage and hour law, Walton and and most of his store managers were furious. They hated the assistant district attorney from Fort Smith who pressed the case because, as one manager put it, quote, now dingbats in the store would be making $1.15 an hour. When a court order called for... Walton to issue checks to the clerks at his store at his stores for back pay, including a double time penalty for what they had lost. He told a meeting of his employees, quote, I'll fire anyone who cashes the check. Cooler heads soon prevailed, but Walton's determination to hold the line on his labor costs had hardly softened, nor had his contempt for the regulatory state and its laws. <laughs> <laughs> 
But so basically, he's like doing illegal wage theft and wage suppression, and then he threatens to fire people who cash checks right. that he is ordered he's by the <laughs> that he is ordered by the court to pay. Um, and you know, and you can just imagine this kind of like um, uh, intimidation of your workforce. Again, you know, you have very little legal protection from the federal government, and you might depend on this job or, or these sorts of things. So he's a lot of uh, power over you. Um, and so I guess we can kind of move on to the, the first Walmart opens 1962 in Rogers, Arkansas. The thing he comes up with is Kmart is very popular at the time. Right. So mm-hmm. he avoids Kmart, whereas Kmart and uh, other type of uh, retailers that are similar to him, they won't really open a store in a, in a town with less than 12,000 people or something. So he focuses on all these markets that Kmart avoids. Hmm. And from this, he's able to build up his own little logistics uh, supply chain, which would ultimately uh, defeat Kmart. But I guess uh, we should maybe mention... Um, uh, That's the just-in-time system. Right. So, yes, he like opens all these different stores, um, and part of it is like all of his stores are within a day's, a day's drive of his distribution centers. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, really? Yeah, yeah. So it's like... Yeah, he sets up his own trucking service. All of his stores are located within one, within a day's drive of regional Walmart warehouses. Oh, and he also encourages, at this early point, um, he encourages managers to buy equity stakes in the stores, so they have incentive for it to do well. Later, of course, today, Walmart uh, runs everything out of the central office, and managers have very little autonomy. But in these early days, it was kind of different. Yeah. And uh, this didn't happen right away, but he was one of the... Like, like any anyone with their in- inventory can understand when something was sold, mm-hmm. like after the fact at like a meeting every you know month or so. Mm-hmm. But he used like the emerging barcode and centralized computing technology to look at what was being sold when, mm-hmm. and like incorporated just in time <laughs> oh, really? supply chain management in a way that a lot of retailers didn't weren't aware of. Hmm. One of the early mistakes he made, though, was that um, they had a strict policy not to hit uh, tour vans with famous comedians. <laughs> oh, oh, really? <laughs> and they, they later reformed that uh, to adapt with the times. Um, but, yes, yeah, so... Yeah, so uh, he, he knew... I, I think, in general, one of his innovations was um, you... You don't just know like what was sold, but you also know exactly when and during when it's being sold. Mm-hmm. So you can yes. just get like an hour's head start on the supply chain for that one item. Right. He was an early innovator as far as like data collection and barcodes. Uh, he set up his own logistics network, which served you know small town rural America, which was completely avoided by Kmart and these kinds of competitors. So he was able to build up his own uh, logistics operation, which would eventually become extremely efficient. Like a lot of the later, the much much later, like business reviews of his. There's there's tons of like Harvard Harvard Business Review articles about Walmart, obviously, mm-hmm. and like they a lot of people have the contention that it's not actually a retail company; it's a supply chain company. Right. And the retail is just sort of keeps the lights on, but the integration of supply chain and logistics is what they're like the real sort of absolute advantage of Walmart. They um. <coughs> Use their uh, supply chain logistics to uh, move a guy named Oswald into Dallas, Texas. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, but so, yes, it, it's like, and, and then just like the other thing is in this period, again, he's like, he's a guy who gambled and won because he's heavily leveraged in this period, the 1960s. Right. And so, you know, leverage, like if the economy turns bad, you're just fucked. So... There's really things that are outside of your control, but he gambles on heavy leverage by his own admission in his um, in his biography. He was in the 60s, uh, quote, the, him and his wife were in debt up to their eyeballs. They were seven several million dollars in debt. Um, and so because what they would do to open another store is they would just leverage the previous one, you mm-hmm. know. So and then uh, none he of want, the, he wanted to beat daddy. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Who wouldn't take on debt. Yes. <laughs> Uh, and so, um, uh, none of the like traditional investment banks in the sixties will touch him because of this heavy debt. So what he actually does is he uses even more debt to buy up the national bank in Rogers, Arkansas, which had about $29 million in deposits at the time. So he buys a bank and then uses it to give himself even more debt from that bank. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
But I guess, and then we kind of get into the 1970s where he goes public, but uh, there were like a couple drops, I don't know, about the, um, uh, mainly about the unionization stuff, because they kind of talk, Sam Walton, like his successors, uh, despised unions and union membership, and- What? if you tried to join a union, he would fire you. And again, we've kind of talked about it this on the podcast. It is illegal to fire people for unionizing. Mm-hmm. But uh, a kind of an interesting thing I learned researching this is that the penalty, if you sue, The is, labor laws are such that uh, if a company fires a worker for organizing and the worker litigates it all the way through the courts, the worst that can happen to the company is that they have to hire the worker back. There's no additional penalty of any kind. You don't have fines that are imposed. So companies really are, are very easily able to fire workers when they try to organize. And Walmart has been very aggressive about doing that, about keeping people out. They have a, a professional team of union busters that, uh, that go from store to store whenever something threatens to do that. So that was Bob Ortega. He wrote the book In Sam We Trust. Um, and there's a lot of interesting tidbits in there. But yes, yeah, so even in its earliest days, Walmart was aggressively anti-union. We've already mentioned about the wage theft stuff. But... Um, yeah, so they had these teams of people who would like anywhere they suspected union activity, just go in and fire everybody. And this is also where Sam Walton comes up with the profit-sharing scheme, which is like something they're kind of praised for. But Sam was one of the pioneers in profit-sharing. <coughs> uh, in the early days when the unions started trying to organize the stores, Walton uh, went into the stores and uh, told the workers that he'd fire them if they tried to organize. And... Uh, and that was a pretty successful tactic. <laughs> the workers didn't want to lose their jobs. Uh, and he hired this guy as a professional union buster. And the guy said, look, you know, we can do this every time a store tries to organize. We can, you know, stop them. But there's another way to approach this, and that's to make the workers feel that you're on their side. Make them feel that you're all on the same team. And he suggested uh, some different things that, that Walton wound up adopting. One of them was profit sharing. The other was the music. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, so this theme is actually from... Uh, it's from Walmart's union busting training video. <laughs> yep. Which do you want to go into that now? Uh, yeah, yeah though I guess just like one quick word on profit sharing. Interestingly enough, uh, if you look at the uh, Walmart like associate documents or y- the stuff they give to employees, interesting thing they say about profit sharing is first of all, Walmart reserves the right to cancel profit sharing at any time, <laughs> which uh, different from a pension because at least like with a pension you have to go through like bankruptcy courts to get right, it dislodged, right. <laughs> which is still fucked up. But profit sharing is like a way of them to like act like they give a shit with very little commitment on their part and certainly Mm -hmm. not the long-term kind of thing that you would have if you actually had to pay a pension. But interestingly enough, like I don't know the stats for what it was like uh, in um, Sam Walton's day, but today they still have this nominal profit sharing, but because turnover at Walmart is so high, almost no employees get access to it. Oh really? Like Walmart peaked in the 90s at about 70% annual workforce uh, turnover. 70% of the fucking workforce was leaving every year, and now it's around 40%. So this is a huge turnover rate, and essentially it's like, I mean, Amazon does a similar thing, but if they want to get rid of you, they will give you terrible schedules. You know, right. you'll be working graveyard shift. They'll uh, transfer you. They'll bust your hours. They'll do whatever they have to. So it's like, even if you get close to like access to this profit sharing goal very few workers really do get it get anything from it um but yes so there is this anti-union training video that uh walmart i think this one is like oh seven or oh nine or something in the early in 2000s it was definitely made after green screen technology Uh, it became accessible because several parts of the videos show employees uh, supposedly in the stores, but you can tell from like the fuzziness outlining them right, that right. they're in front of a green screen with a projected image of like a produce aisle behind them. <laughs> You've made a great choice to work for Walmart, and we're glad you're here. Choice. But the reality is, you're not the only one looking to get your foot in the door at Walmart. <gasps> You made a great choice to work at the one retail hiring in this entire rural area. Right, right. <laughs> You might have heard stories on the news, read about it in the paper, or seen it on the internet, but labor unions are really interested in Walmart and have spent millions of dollars specifically focused on us. Labor unions are investigating to find out who killed Kennedy. (laughs) (laughs) Now, 
I think you know by now that our company prefers to have open and direct communication with our associates. Yeah. We don't think that a labor union is necessary here. And because our associates have said time after time that they don't want a union, we usually don't spend a lot of time talking about them. But as a new member of our team, we do think you need to know this. In recent years, union organizers have spent a lot of time, effort, and money trying to convince Walmart associates to join a union, all without any success. Now, while they've been trying to convince associates to join their union, at the same time, they've been spending big money trying to hurt our business. And they've been telling customers not to shop in our stores and clubs. <laughs> now, here's, here's the kicker. I don't get it. How would it make sense for associates to join any union that wants to damage our reputation <laughs> and drive business away from our doors so associates don't get ours? Uh, it just doesn't make sense. Funny like thing is, I always thought middle. unions were kind of like clubs, you know, or charities that were out to help workers, right? Well, I found out that wasn't exactly the case. That's like a community college acting monologue. You know, unions uh, damage Walmart's reputation with those uh, hundreds of Clean Water Act violations <laughs> where the unions were dumping all those chemicals directly into rivers. Because of <laughs> That's just yes, You see, unions get almost all of their money from monthly dues, initiation fees, and assessments against members. Because union membership has dropped over the years to less than 8% of private employers, Unions are fighting to survive. Well, that's true. It just doesn't mean what they company, think it does. You can understand their interest in Walmart. It is a business. I like their equivalent to like, this always comes with like anti-union rhetoric is that like, they're just trying to get money for their <laughs> right, dues. Right, yeah. <laughs> Those fat cats in their like tiny union offices. I like this idea of like unions uh, damaging Walmart's reputation. So like Jimmy Hoffa disappeared because he like wanted to go to uh, Bangladesh and burn a factory down. <laughs> Jimmy Hoffa destroyed all of the fire exits for the fucking factory where they make the Walmart garments. And that's why they couldn't find their body. He was overseas. Oh, and of course, great irony of this anti-union training video. All of the actors in it, union workers. <laughs> SAG union workers. Um, Our philosophy is simple. We are pro-associates. Here, all associates are free to talk openly with their leaders. I'm completely comfortable sharing my ideas and concerns with my leaders, and I know that they really listen to what I have to say. <gasps> By using the open How true process, do you think that is about I'm the director of that video? <laughs> I speak on my own behalf. And frankly, I don't think Walmart associates should have to have someone to speak for them. It's just not that kind of place. I went through this bullshit when I worked for this company, um that I won't say their name, but they were owned by the Swiss Postal Service, uh, not related to their name. Um, and we would have these like little events. Um, They're called like training classes where they would sit us down with HR, like groups of people from the company. And we had to do like them for three weeks. And they would just tell us like, you know, we just want to hear what you think about the job. Are you satisfied? And they would like point to people and be like, are you satisfied? And even though it was a terrible job, like I got pointed to and I was like, yes, I am completely satisfied <laughs> with the job I'm doing here. Yep. You should have been like, give me a W, give me an A, give me an L, squiggly line. <laughs> one, one other thing they said in, in the thing I was in um, at a company I won't name that is run by the Swiss Postal Service um, mm. is that they're like, you know, you guys are lucky that we have these trainings because like in Europe, because they have unions, they only have to do trainings where they learn practical job skills. <laughs> <laughs> uh, wow, really? Yeah. <laughs> what idiots. I did like uh, from that clip where you just played, um, every associate is free to talk to Walmart one-on-one. -on -one. You know, <laughs> that uh, fair negotiating position yeah. <laughs> where somebody making $11 an hour <laughs> is arguing with the largest private corporation in the world, one-on-one. Yeah, yeah. on one. All of it is just basically to obscure the fact that, like, the union, like, it's, you, would you, do you want a collective voice? Yeah. Do you want, do you want to take power? Yes. No, actually, you shouldn't, because Walmart is your friend. Yes. Right, right. Yeah. Well, uh, like, uh, time and again, <laughs> you know, we've successfully crushed unions, so obviously they, they, they aren't winning, you know? I mean, how can an outsider really get to know what it's like to work at Walmart? Um, these triple parentheses outsiders, like... I look at it this way. With what we have here, I'm not willing to trade it for a union that doesn't know anything about me or my goals. My goals, working 
on the ground at Walmart. Yeah. My goal's uh, working from 11 p.m. to 7 a.m. <laughs> <laughs> and then opening in. the store the next day. Yeah. <laughs> right. And, you know, we just mentioned, like, Walmart will give you these fucked up schedules and just completely mess with you and reassign you. Right. Or in, in some cases, like, in the case of, like, district managers they want to get rid of, they'll just, like, say they have a family or whatever. They'll just assign them to a store on the other side of the country. You oh, know? really? So it's just, like, all this stuff. And they do this to force people to quit so they don't have to pay unemployment benefits. Right. Um, but all of this stuff is exactly what a union will present prevent because if you have workers who collectively Sean. bargain, you I know. I tell you that every job has its ups and downs, and a union can't change that. Fact. <laughs> <laughs> it was literally like um, the mayor of Washington D.C. Uh, just tweeted out uh, last month that uh, they overrode the fifteen dollar minimum wage for restaurant workers in Washington D.C. and uh-huh. she tweeted out quoting somebody saying. Uh, uh, a, a higher wages won't end sexual harassment on the job. <laughs> wow. Just like, this is like that Adolph Reed Jr. quote where like Hillary said, uh, we're breaking up the big banks and racism. And he was like, well, no, but it, it won't cure sunspots either. <laughs> it won't, you know, uh, prevent premature balding. I mean, you could go down the list. It's just a ridiculous argument. Wait, we're trying to cure sunspots? <laughs> That's that's real hard. Those are huge magnetic storms. I'm paraphrasing him. Uh, but yes, yeah, so it's just like one of those ridiculous things. And it's like, and I guess we can just kind of, before we get back to Sam Walton... Um, the uh, documentary Wall Street High Cost of Low uh, Walmart High Cost of Low Prices talks about just how insanely anti-union Walmart is. So basically, like they interview a manager. And he says that um, in one situation, uh, some employee typed up, I think it was keylogged, he typed up on one of the computers, we need a union. He didn't distribute this material, he didn't do anything else, but because this was logged, this district manager immediately had to place a phone call to headquarters and later that day pick up executives from corporate office from the airport in their private jet because they had flown down there because any union activity is a huge red flag and Walmart goes all out. So what happens is like as soon as Walmart thinks any store is unionizing, they set up all of these spy cameras and technology to like monitor the movements every single employee any employee yeah. they think is a risk of unionization is going to be terminated or have their life fucked with or any of this and it's also like a process to like isolate them from other employees you know so it's like divide and conquer exactly like so you know this guy is a union organizer and management has like put a target on his back so if you're talking to him you're going to get fired too you know and <laughs> <laughs> but this is what they listen to on the jet over <laughs> But uh, uh, just from the Walmart high cost of low prices documentary, um, they said that they this is just the spending that Walmart does to prevent unions. They spend $7,000 on anti-union camera packages per store. They spend $30,000 on an undercover spy van per store. So it's like so funny, like we maybe next week we'll talk a bit more about the crime epidemic at Walmart. Right. But like... They, their security monitoring stuff is focused on preventing unions. So, like, there was a, a situation where it was very tragic. A woman was murdered, or she was abducted from a Walmart parking lot and sexually assaulted and murdered. It's horrible. But the only reason there was a camera in that Walmart parking lot was to monitor for union activity. And because there were no, like, unionization activities going on, nobody was watching the camera. What? So this camera records her getting abducted in the parking lot, but nobody is fucking watching the thing because there's no union members nearby so they don't alert the police and then you know hours later she's driven off and killed so it's just so fucked up i mean like god i hate these people but they uh i will say at first i was wondering like how are you going to (laughs) disguise a security truck in a walmart parking lot like how are you going to distinguish it from all the minivans and stuff and i realized oh you just make it look like a meth lab and there's going to be like eight of those <laughs> they just have like several homeless people sleeping in there to make it blend into the walmart just parking put, like, lot like a ladder on it and a couple of some other equipment <laughs> Uh, it should be a truck, actually. But yes, they also spend a hundred, at least a hundred thousand a year on a twenty-four hour anti-union hotline. So if you suspect unionization, you're supposed to call these people and snitch on other workers they think are going to union. Do we have the number for that? <laughs> do we call them up? Yeah. And uh, they also spend at least seven million dollars on a rapid response team with corporate jet, which, as we mentioned, 
any store in all of their stores that they think is going to be unionization, they send you know, all of these people on corporate jets there to develop an anti-union strategy. And all of this is to just prevent any store in the United States from becoming unionized. And so far they have successfully. I think they have like one store in Canada that's successfully unionized where labor laws are a little more um, uh, in favor of unionization. Yeah, they're on the front lines of like bourgeois control over labor policy. Mm -hmm. And they're the largest employer. Yeah, they are the largest employer in the United States. And like another thing is like a lot of people talked about like why haven't wages been rising as we have this record low unemployment? Well, part of that is like it's uh, a monopsony situation with labor where if Define there's a uh, monopsony, uh, monopsony is like one, the, one buyer. Yeah, one buyer. So like so a monopoly is one seller. A monopsony is one buyer. So if you're selling your labor and there's only one buyer in town, the big Walmart that destroyed all the other mom and pop retail stores, right. there's only one buyer for your labor. So they get to set the price of labor and uh, they set it very low. And this might be part of why we uh, haven't really seen a wage increase with our so-called record low unemployment. Um, hey, let's wrap up the uh, Sam Walton story. Mm-hmm, yes. Mm-hmm. So we, we we were at the 1970s where uh, Sam Walton, you know, he buys up a bank to get like a, an even bigger infusion of capital. Um, but what happens is in 1970, he goes public for even more capital. Um, so at 1970, he has about 32 stores. Uh, these are just in Oklahoma, Arkansas, and Missouri. This is where he's focused. And uh, he gives up a 20% stake in the company for about $4 million in 1970. And then, you know, Walmart starts exploding because by the end of 71, there's 51 Walmarts generating annual revenue of $78 million. Um, And then in 1972, he decides to compete directly with Kmart for the first time. He Mm -hmm. opens a store in Hot Springs, Arkansas. He's able to beat Kmart on price. Again, this is with like a huge investment and his logistics operations. And then um, 1972, he also is listed on the New York Stock Exchange for the first time. So by the 70s, uh, and even by the 60s, he's already, you know, multi-millionaire. And um, it's it's interesting where, like, essentially, like, the 70s and 80s are dominated by this retail war between Kmart and Walmart. Um, Sam Walton does step down for a bit. In 1974, he's already, like, 65. He's right. a multi-millionaire. So he retires and he wants to go play tennis and do quail hunting, where, like, one of the more depressing things I read is that, like, he's such a workaholic that he didn't spend time with his wife. So even though she hated quail hunting, she would go with him oh just to God. spend time with him. <laughs> like, what a pathetic life. Yeah. I'm just imagining uh, Sam Walton shooting a quail and being like, take that, Jack Kennedy. <laughs> <laughs> um, what a poor wife having yeah. to go on those fucking trips. Well, not poor. Yeah, fair. <laughs> Um, but yeah, so, uh, 70, 1976 Kmart starts like competing with Walmart where they start opening stores in Walmart areas. So it's kind of like a retail war, uh, breaks out, but, um, but Walmart eventually, uh, wins that war. Uh, they really go through a boom time in the 1980s with the Reagan presidency, um, uh, by 79, 1979, he has 230 stores, gross revenue about a billion dollars a year. Um, 1983, he, excuse me, he's 65 in 1983, so he was in his 50s when he retired for the first time, but he's a workaholic, so he can't stand it, so he comes back after two years. Um, 1983, he's diagnosed with leukemia. He signs up for an experimental drug called interfernon, and his cancer goes into remission. You know, these things that everybody has access to, of course. Right, right. Um, so 1983, he's age 65, diagnosed with leukemia. 1985, Forbes magazine lists him as the richest man in America. So yeah, by the eighties, like they're huge. They opened their 1000th store in 1987. Mm -hmm. Uh, they passed Sears, which recently just went bankrupt in 1991, they passed Sears. And then in 1992, he dies of bone cancer. And news of his death was beamed via satellite into all of the Walmart stores. And they're forced to look at his portrait all day. Give me an R. Give me an I. Give me a P. What's that spell? They were actually, when they were announced that, everyone had to uh, cry. And if you were seen not crying, uh, (laughs) you risked being executed by the um, Politburo. (laughs) Um. 
But yeah, so he dies 1992 at the time, the uh, richest man in America, uh, you know, before Bill Gates and all that. And, and it's just kind of interesting where, um, again, the, the seven Walmart heirs who are on the Forbes 400 richest list basically just inherited everything he built and exploited. Um, but there have been like changes where we mentioned, you know, store, store managers used to have like equity stakes and... Like Sam Walton was very much breathing down their necks to like cut labor costs and these sorts of things, prevent unionization. But they had a degree of autonomy that simply doesn't exist anymore where like um, now everything in all of these, you know, thousand plus Walmart stores is run out of the central offices in Bentonville, Arkansas. And another thing that happens in 2007, Walmart launches computerized scheduling systems where store managers used to write the schedules for their employers, but now Mm -hmm. the central computer in Bentonville, Arkansas, writes your schedule. And it's, again, one of those things where it's like, it just gives insane schedules. It's essentially playing a a corporation. (laughs) And, like, to a degree, it, like, affected the retail market. Because, I mean, Walmart is seen as, like, a price leader. Mm -hmm. Right, right. They administer their prices accordingly. And then that little trade association meetings... Uh, their competitors would follow suit to a degree. Right. Yeah, and I mean, like, yeah, both on prices and on wages. Yeah, you know, labor, long, yeah, labor yeah, practices. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, um, you know, and people talk about, I guess, like the Walmart effect was essentially like, you know, devastating rural America. You can argue it might have been someone else who does it, but, you know, Walmart opens up. They put what? all... When did they adopt the, the computerized... Um... Computerized schedules were 2007 because they used to have their store managers spending, you know, of course, several hours a week putting a schedule together. And also there's like a human face on that. Like if you need time off for X, you can at least talk to your store manager. Right. Whereas now there's a fucking computer spitting out your schedule and it's just impossible to like plan everything, anything or have a life, you know? In the mid 90s, a lot of their competition was starting to feel the pressure Mm-hmm. And I'm just looking at their stock price history. And in 19, it really explodes in about 1996 to 1997. Right. Well, and it then goes from 20, about $20 a share to about 50. Really? Within like two years. Wow. That's nuts. Yeah. Well, another interesting thing that happens in the nineties, and this is like the big uh, innovation that comes after Sam Walton dies is they just stop sourcing any of their products from the United States. Because, you know, Sam Walton had a, a logistics chain, but he was still, you know, sourcing U.S.-made products. Whereas what happens in the 1990s, uh, particularly uh, China starts getting most favored nation status. They joined the World Trade Organization in 2001, mm-hmm. and Walmart becomes a heavy importer. I believe after China joins the WTO, Walmart triples their imports from China in just a few years. And... Um, it's just something where it's like the other part of the story is like we've talked about the destruction of retail wages, but also manufacturing. Um, the economist Dean Baker uh, has this interesting stat that I just want to share with you. In the three decades from 1970 to 2000, manufacturing employment in the United States only fell by 100,000, less than 1%. By contrast, we lost more than 3.4 million manufacturing jobs from the year 2000 to 2007, and that's before the uh, economic collapse of 08, which was more than 20% of total employment. So almost all of that, well, I mean, you can argue about what to attribute it to, but I think it's pretty obvious that China joins the WTO in 2001. They get permanent most favored nation status in 2000. And so Walmart essentially outsources almost all of their manufacturing to China and Bangladesh and Cambodia and such. But it's just one of those things where it's like Walmart has had a lot of different bad effects that have been enabled by government policy. Certainly. So, uh, the labor relations number is one eight seven seven five four five two two six seven. Okay. And uh, they ask you to enter your social security number Thank when you, you call them. There's no reception up here. Uh, this is okay. So it asked me the other two times I called to confirm this while Sean was talking. Mm-hmm. Uh, they asked you to give four numbers from your social security numbers. So <laughs> one, two, three, four. Uh, call failed. So uh, to wrap up, this is kind of what Walmart culture is now regarding um, Sam Walton. At uh, at the average annual meeting, I-, I was at an annual meeting a couple of years ago after Walton had died. 
at which uh, one of the executives actually got down on one knee and he talked to Mr. Sam up in heaven. And Mr. Sam up You're in pointing heaven the wrong told way, him guys. that he wanted all the workers to get up and sing, God bless America, and they did. You know, I didn't really believe the thing Pretty that, sensitive. like, uh, hardcore evangelistic uh, Christianity was just worshiping America. But, like, after hearing that, it's like, oh, yeah, that's exactly Yeah, right, right, right. <laughs> I also love that you're talking to someone who is in another plane of existence, uh, knows this, supposedly knows a new level of secrets to the universe, and is like, yeah, sing a song. <laughs> <laughs> Let's find the most dangerous Walmart parking lot in America and call the hotline and say there's a union meeting there. <laughs> um. But yeah, I mean, so I guess like to kind of wrap up, you've heard the story today of uh, Sam Walton and how he was able to uh, build a, a billion dollar, uh, you know, uh, become the richest man in America and leave uh, his heirs with seven of them being on the Forbes 400 richest people in the world list. And um, next week, I think we'll talk a bit more about some of Wal- uh, Walmart itself, its destructive practices uh, as far as, you know, uh, crime and uh, the supply chain in Bangladesh. And we'll talk a little bit about those seven heirs and, uh, you know, we'll all fuck each other. Yes. And uh, <laughs> what they do with all of that money they have been given. Uh, they've spent less than 0.04 percent of their net worth oh on God. charity. <laughs> Which uh, is abysmal. But I guess that's how you stay on the Forbes 400. Right. And with that, this has been Grubstakers. I'm Yogi Polywall. I'm Steve Jeffries. I'm Andy Palmer. I'm Sean McCarthy. Uh, stay tuned for more on the Wal- Walton family next week. Thanks for listening. <laughs>